So not too long ago, we asked you all, growing up, how did you define success? And a lot of it came down to money. Growing up, I thought that success meant being extremely rich, at least a millionaire. Fancy houses, Banana Republic clothes. My first boyfriend told me his mom was having her bathroom repainted, and that was really a shocker for me. I thought, well, one day I'm going to be able to hire someone to do the painting for me. I'm a second-generation immigrant, so success meant that we were going to achieve the American dream. My idea was to make as much money as I could. Getting a bachelor's degree and then a master's degree. Making sure that I had the white picket fence. Getting to the middle class. For Raniqua Allen Lamfair, her idea of success growing up, well, it was pretty specific. I was going to have a perfect chocolate brown husband who had this, like, perfect smile with, like, a perfect suit. I thought I was going to, you know, go to college, maybe in California, and then have this kind of perfect family. And maybe most importantly, it was having this, you know, house, like this kind of amazing home. In Renique's mind, owning a home was central to unlocking this dream life. And it felt within reach when, at 25, she found a home she could buy. It was my coming-of-age story, or maybe it was my coming-of-age mistake. But at the time, it, it did mean success for me. I'm Eddie Mejres, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show for Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. Sometimes our ideas of what it means to be successful well, they change. This week, we share the story of one woman who adamantly chases her idea of success of one day owning a home, only for it to completely backfire. Orniqua grew up in Inglewood, New Jersey, and she says the city, it always felt like it was split up in two parts. There's literally like a railroad track that divides from uh, the Black and, and Latino neighborhoods, and you go up a hill, and it's, like, rich people, literally, mm. like, on a hill in these, like, million-dollar mansions. Oh, wow. Um, which is kind of nuts. Raniqua's family lived in the, quote-unquote, Black side of town. In East Hill, it was the posh, rich side where white people were more likely to live. Raniqua says East Hill just felt inaccessible, like, she remembers this story her mom told her, how in the 60s, one Halloween, she and her friends were driving around that neighborhood. She got pulled over by the police, like, trying to trick-or-treat there one year. They told them that, that this was not the place where they belonged. Go back home. Get off this hill. This hill is ours. But even back home in their Inglewood neighborhood, things weren't easy. Her mom always talked about how tough it was to get her own house in the 80s. The bank would only give her a loan if her boyfriend co-signed. She juggled three jobs as a social worker and made every mortgage payment on her own. And she was proud. It was a sense of, like, we were making it. Like, it was my mom's success, but I think it was for my grandparents. It's like, our family is making this. Like, this house is, yes, it's like my mom's, but it was all of ours. 
Her mom's place was just down the road from her grandparents' house, which they also owned. And having this multi-generational home ownership, it felt huge for them, especially given how for decades Black families have been locked out of property and, frankly, wealth by redlining and other discriminatory real estate practices. Then, in 2005, Reniqua had just gotten her master's and was living in New Jersey, and she decided she'd take the leap and buy a home. She was 25, working in TV and not making a ton of money, but she was tired of throwing it away on rent. My mom's eyes lit up when I talked about potentially getting a home, Hmm. and I saw how much that meant to her. But I also, like, wanted to claim that dream on my own terms and, like, for myself. Reniqua was excited. She and her mom started apartment hunting, looking around in Harlem, Jersey City. But it was all really expensive. She remembers sitting in her broker's office. And her broker told her she could take out this special type of loan. A loan for people without a lot of money where the bank wouldn't even need to know her income, just that she was employed. And how much were you making at the time? $28,000. Yeah, not a lot of money, especially in New York City. But her broker told her she qualified for a $200,000 loan. It's like insane. What were these banks thinking? It gave a 25-year-old, like, $200,000. But at the time, she didn't really question it. Because with that kind of money, well, meant she had options. But really, like, really the moment that was so big was when I realized that I could afford a place on the East Hill. Oh, wow. Yeah, East Hill, the rich and white part of town. And, you know, Reniqua at first was really conflicted. She says she worried that maybe somehow she was betraying her race by not buying in her community. But then she thought East Hill would be a smarter investment. She figured the property value would hold better. After checking out a couple places in East Hill, her realtor showed her this ground floor apartment that really stuck out to her. It was a fairly small apartment, but with a really big bedroom overlooking a courtyard. It was kind of beautiful and cozy, and um, it had a really big closet, so (laughs) that was nice, too. She had about $10,000 in savings, and with help from her mom, she could afford a $40,000 down payment. And even though it'd be tough, she could manage the monthly mortgage bill. But her broker warned her she'd need to eventually get out of this loan, because after a few years, her interest rates would skyrocket. So she'd need to qualify for a more traditional fixed interest loan before that happened. And so I took a calculation. I took a risk. You're banking on your salary jumping a lot. Yeah, I was. Reniqua went ahead and bought the apartment. You want every generation, you know, to do better than you. And moving on the East Hill, like that was my sign that I was I was doing better. I that I was progress. She says it felt like a win for her family. And she says, if she's going to be honest, made her feel good about herself. I wanted to show that I am successful. Yeah. And do you think you wanted to show you were successful to yourself, like proving that to yourself or to your family? 
Yeah, I think I think it was a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I've always been trying to find the thing that makes me feel like I'm good enough or I'm worthy. Having a home would make me feel like I belong, that I'm just as good as everyone else who told me that I wasn't or every person who said I wasn't worthy or I couldn't have this job. There was lots of that in um, in school. But mainly, I also think that I wanted to just stake my claim in America. Coming up after the break, Raniqua's dream does not go as planned. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. On a late summer day in 2005, Raniqua officially moved into her home. I think I remember when my mom left, when the movers left, I just put up my feet on the table. That was a good moment. She bought her first real piece of art for $400 and hung it on the wall. She set up candles in her fireplace because the fireplace didn't work. And she replaced the kitchen floor with cobalt blue tiles. Like, I was getting this blue floor. Like, I was an adult. I was doing what I wanted to do. It's such a small thing, but it was a big thing to me. She was making monthly mortgage payments of about $1,200. And she wasn't wrong. Her salary working in TV production did go up. Within a few years, she was making $70,000. So she refinanced and got approved for a traditional loan. I didn't really struggle, but there's a there's a but coming. Okay. <laughs> like, dun, dun, dun. Then what happens? While Obama was running for president, and so I think there were a lot of talks about like dreaming big and hope and aspiration. And I was like, well, shit, I need to dream big too. She wanted to write and think and engage with these like big ideas. So she enrolled in graduate school to get a Ph.D. studying Black history and culture. That meant she had to quit her job and was now making $24,000 as a teaching assistant. And while she loved being back in school, the financial part was tough. I was like barely making it. I was scraping by. I was stressed out. I was crying a lot. And all of a sudden, this thing that I was so excited about it felt like I had a big like albatross around my neck. To make her mortgage payments, she picked up some writing and TV gigs. She ran up two credit cards and she cashed in a $14,000 bond from her grandfather. Still, it was barely enough. And at this point, she was in her late 20s, a time in your life when all your friends start branching out in all these different directions. She saw friends buying homes of their own, getting married, having their first kid. Meanwhile, I was freaking out about not having 
a partner. I had this house that started to feel empty as my friends started to pair up. I thought about freezing my eggs. Um, then I realized I couldn't really afford that. So it was just weird being in these kind of super elite spaces in many ways. Like I was in a PhD program. You know, I was still like writing for the Washington Post or the New York Times even. Um, and then like coming home and being like, how am I going to make my life work was, was hard. Financially, she was exhausted. I just felt like a failure. There was one financial solution that seemed kind of obvious. She could sell the apartment and get a new place with a bunch of roommates. But Reniqua says she didn't really consider that. She wanted to feel like both dreams were possible, getting her PhD and owning a home. Even her mom convinced her to hold on to it just a little longer. Selling it would feel like backtracking on the progress they'd made. I had invested so much of me and I had pinned so much of what success looked like on having this house. And even if she was struggling, she could still be proud that it was hers. And she felt like no one could take that away from her. But then, after a few years living in that apartment, she went home one night after a long day. She grabbed the mail and settled into her place. I was like throwing my keys about and I put my my coat on the table. And you know how you kind of mindlessly scatter through the mail. And that's when she saw a letter from an unfamiliar address. And I opened this letter. And as soon as she started reading, she had to immediately sit down. It said that I was potentially a victim of predatory lending. She kept rereading that line. The letter was talking about that first mortgage loan, the one she got without the lender ever verifying her income or looking at her credit, the one that made this apartment possible. I had been a victim of predatory lending. I was just shocked. I was completely shocked. Okay, so some context here. This was shortly after 2008, when the housing market crashed and suddenly thousands and thousands of people were foreclosing. And a big reason for that is because lenders had given out these deliberately impossible loans. The loans had high rates or hidden fees, or like in Reniqua's case, rates that would balloon after a few years. And lenders, they would push these loans on people who are more likely to struggle to pay them, people who wouldn't qualify for traditional loans, often targeting Black and Hispanic communities. When the housing bubble burst, suddenly Black and brown homeowners were losing their houses at way higher rates than white homeowners. And this predatory lending was the culprit. Thinking back on it, Renigua says she knows that the loan she got didn't require a lot of financial paperwork. So I knew that that particular product was sketchy. I wasn't stupid, but I just did not connect it at all to to race. And if you remember, she actually got out of that predatory loan before the rates jumped. So to be clear, it didn't screw her over. She was struggling to pay the bills because of grad school. But that wasn't the point. When I got that letter, it was like, this has not ended. 
the progress that I thought I made by moving to the East Hill, it wasn't progress anymore. It had vanished for me in that moment because I felt like I was just like my mom in the, you know, 1960s getting pulled over by the police. The condo no longer felt like her piece of America. What she thought she did on her own terms was really made possible because of racist lending practices. The hard thing for me is that at the same time, this is when I'm studying about Black homeownership. This is when I'm learning about redlining. This is when I learn about Black suburbanization. So this is, I'm, I'm thinking about these things as a, as a budding scholar. And I didn't connect that it happened to me or that it could happen to me. And it was, it was absolutely devastating. This letter was asking her to join a class action lawsuit since there was evidence that her lender had engaged in these discriminatory practices. And if she joined, she'd be entitled to a settlement if they won. Because this has been happening to Black people and brown people for, for decades in America. And I want to make a statement by signing on to this. And that's what you did? No. No. I didn't do that. And Reniqua wanted the lenders to suffer, to pay up. But she left that letter untouched, just sitting on her table. Days turned into weeks. Weeks turned to months. I think I didn't know how to process whatever that was. It was some kind of loss. I had been struggling financially to keep this thing that had been so important to me. I felt like it was all for nothing. Eventually, Reniqua got another letter. The mortgage lender had settled the discrimination case. If she'd signed on, she would have been entitled to $200. $200. I just feel like it was an insult. She'd realized that the obstacles to homeownership, to quote-unquote making it, may look different than they did decades ago. But the obstacles were still there. This idea that, you know, anyone can do what they want if they work hard enough is different if you don't feel like you have opportunity in the first place. Reniqua ended up finding a tenant for the apartment and eventually sold it at a loss. How did it feel when you sold it? Relief. And it felt like a weight was finally lifted. And I wasn't sure in the end if it was worth it if it was just a bad financial decision, this thing that, you know, could have been this this big dream, it didn't work. When she wasn't in the haze of searching for the apartment or scrambling to make payments, she could step back and see that maybe being successful wasn't about owning this apartment. I I felt like I had deluded myself into thinking this was a dream when maybe in America, like, you you can't have a dream tied to something as superficial as this condo. Having a home, yes. And that's, that's, I think, what I was looking for when I was searching for this condo. Because for my family, it meant home. It meant comfort. It was all these other things. 
It wasn't the actual thing. It wasn't really about the condo. Growing up, we're taught how to be successful. Maybe our definitions come from our parents, from pop culture, or maybe from the things we lacked growing up. And then we go out in pursuit of it, testing out the theories, succeeding, then failing, failing, then succeeding. And then our experiences, they tend to shift those ideas. They overwrite the ones that were coded into us as kids. What success looked like for me in the end was really the ability to think and to learn and to create in the way that I wanted to. And I think that's not the message we're told. I think that we're told that what success looks like is owning a home, is having a husband, is, 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 ha- is you know, having kids. And I don't think that that's necessarily what success looks like. So remember all those listeners from the beginning of the episode? Well, they also told us how they think of success today. Success are really shifted towards um, mental and, and emotional satisfaction and time with my daughter. I volunteer. I have two children who I'm trying to raise to be good human beings. I live pretty frugally. I want security rather than the outward appearance of success. I saw myself being successful in a suit and tie. I realized life in the cubicle really wasn't me, so I went in a completely different direction. And for some of y'all, a lot of it came down to what you can give back to your family. I started my own company with my younger sister, uh, The Hair Closet, which is really a labor of love. And I do it now with my sister, my mom, my dad. I think that has become way more important than personal success, being able to give other people in my life opportunities and futures. And of course, some of us are still searching for what we actually want. Um, After several years of ultimately running my own kitchen, I ended up uh, an alcoholic. (laughs) Um, I quit drinking, went to AA, I left the job, and I'm currently living in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina, trying to figure out what I want to do and what will make me fulfilled and will make me happy. All right, that is all for this week's show. By the way, today, Reniqua is a writer. She is the author of the book, It Was All a Dream, A New Generation Confronts the Broken Promise to Black America. And if you want more This Is Uncomfortable content, you should sign up for our newsletter. This week, we've got TV recs for really any mood that you're in, plus a great roast chicken recipe. You can sign up for that at marketplace.org newsletters. This is Uncomfortable is me, Rima Hreis, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Camila Kerwin. Our intern is Daniel Martinez, editing by Michaela Bly. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Drew Jostad is our audio engineer. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. And our theme music is by Wonderly. This is Uncomfortable is funded in part by the Cy Sims Foundation, which supports advances in education, scientific research, and the arts. All right. I'll catch y'all soon.